everyone, Vector Podcast is here. Uh, and today we have uh, Tom Lackner, Vice President of Technology at the company called Classic. And I'm sure Tom will talk more about it. And he's also the founder and sole developer of Look Pop, which I'm sure um, Tom will talk more about as well today. And what's really cool is that Tom has been using Vector database called Quadrant um, in his development. And so today we have a user of a vector da database, not a maker. And that's amazing to hear firsthand how it goes with vector databases. Hey, Tom. Hey, what's going on? So, so great that you joined today. And I just wanted to start as usual, like if you could please introduce yourself and, and give a little bit like color to your background. Sure. Uh, my name is Tom Lackner. I'm a software developer living in Miami, Florida, a very uh, warm place. Uh, I've been developing uh, stuff on the web for about 20 years now, since uh, the early days of it. And uh, I really, really love vector databases these days and doing stuff with uh, embeddings. Yeah, fantastic, fantastic. And uh, can you tell more about Classic? Like, so I know that it's about classic cars, but yeah, what this website is about and what's the community maybe around it and so on. So I'm the VP of technology for a site called classic.com that tracks classic car values. So what we basically do is we go out on the web and we grab all the um, car sales that are occurring that are um, happen in a way that's uh, easily um, understood. So if anything is sold with a price on it, we record that information and then we cross-reference all these vehicles uh, broken down into what, what we call markets. So if a, if a vehicle came in two different trims, two different levels of, of options, we break, break those out separately and we can um, give the user a, a really good estimate of value with very specific um, and granular understanding of what, of what a car is really worth. So it's basically like a big data for cars type project, I guess you could say. Yeah, and I mean, I checked the website, and, and I mean, the cars look so great, and and some of them are kind of like uh, on on high end in terms of pricing. So it also defines oh, yeah. the audience, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, classic car values have really gone up in the past five years, especially considering COVID and a couple of uh, factors in the United States. So uh, it's more important than ever to do really intelligent, um, like savvy shopping before you make a purchase. So that's where we're That's where we come in. Oh yeah, awesome. And and like, is it so that the um, kind of the user experience is mostly um, kind of managed on the website, or you have also some offline part of the operations? Um, so most of our operations are online on the website. Um, we also have an iPhone app, but what's really important is our backend crawlers. So um, we have a huge amount of um, software and 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 resources attached to the idea of, of writing crawlers that can understand different auction websites really really well. Um, that's like a critical part of the infrastructure that sort of behind the scenes, but ends up doing, becoming, you know, a, a key part of what we're doing. Yeah. And, and you obviously have a search bar there. So what happens when I type something like in, you know, so on, on classic, we use a combination of Postgres for the actual, uh, like OLTP data, like, you know, the actual, uh, ground truth. And then we feed that into Elasticsearch um, to do the full text search. What we're actually trying to do there is transition that as well to using a text embedding. Um, we, I, I find that text embeddings are easier to use in the long run. Um, but what's actually challenging there is developing a good understanding of typos. Right. So, um, we could probably go into more detail later, but the, most of the, most of the text embeddings that you encounter aren't really typo tolerant. So in our case, um, that search box needs to really understand, like, let's say Ferrari or Lamborghini, those words are often spelled incorrectly, um, yeah. for obvious reasons. So, uh, one of the things that's, that's holding us up there is, is developing a typo resistant level of um, embedding. 
Yeah, it sounds also um, some similarities to web search, for example, you know, like where users are using like colloquial language or if they if they talk to their microphone instead of typing, then you have these right. typical problems yeah. from ASR, like automatic speech recognition systems, and you need to tolerate that. So, so it means that, I don't know, like we've been thinking about data augmentation techniques. Have you, have you thought about that as well? And so what, what I've, what I'm trying to do is to uh, retrain the, retrain the model using um, basically our, our input data, but with uh, certain transformations applied, certain uh, permutations. Um, at this point, I'm not, I, I, I am not at the point where I have a usable model coming out of that, but I'm still doing some uh, research and I, it should work in theory. Yeah, and then there are so so many models like on hugging face that I guess you can also kind of tap in, right? And, and, and all... that's actually one of the one of the hard parts is to evaluate all those models. So yeah. I ended up taking a couple of days to write a script that just downloaded every single one and tried them to to determine which to best at our tasks. Yeah, exactly. And also like choosing kind of the quality metrics is another another direction. Like how do you evaluate? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. we're we're kind of in new territory for a lot of this. So I mean, that's exciting on one hand, but on the other hand, like sometimes you just don't know the answer to a problem, which is like really yeah, hard. yeah, for sure. So in that sense, classic is kind of well, it's it's funny that there is a coincidence, classic, and then classic search, like in a way that you are using TF idea for BM twenty five right. elastic search. Well, of course, you will add an embedding layer at some point to make it more semantic right uh, then you said that you have look pop um, which where you are now experimenting with vector search can you tell me more what is look pop uh, and then how do you implement vector search there um, for the last couple of years i've been really interested in search engines and how search engines work um, i feel like google has sort of done us a disservice in certain ways over the the, the past you know um, couple generations of its development so i've been interested in like you know developing better web search tools um, Lookpop.co is my effort to make a NFT search tool. Um, so NFTs are digital artworks that you can buy. In the past year, the NFT market has exploded. Um, I think something like $6 billion has been exchanged this year in NFTs. Um, but the problem with NFTs is that coming from the, the, like the world and the language of cryptocurrency, a lot of the, the websites related to NFTs are about the, the price, the up, the down, the this, the that, you know, what's hot, what's not, blah, blah, blah. Who's flipping, you know? Like I personally don't care for that. Um, so I was looking for an, an NFT search engine that, that could actually help me understand the meaning of NFTs and find visually similar ones. Um, if I find something I like, it would be cool to like, be able to see stuff that's kind of in that same vein without having to manually search around. On OpenSea, for instance, um, which is the number one NFT market, um, you can only search by the name of the creators, right? Which is so weird to me. I wanted to be able to search by themes, um, by visual styles, and when I came across um, Clip, the text embedding system or the image embedding system, um, it really like it provided all of those features in a pretty easy to use way. So I'm really excited about that functionality. Yeah, and, and Clip is basically the embedding model uh, developed by OpenAI. And I think it's also available as a hugging face model. So you can kind of plug it in much easier in the code, yeah. And so you have what is your experience with Clip so far? So one of the, the the great things about embeddings is that when they work, it's like a so it's like sort of like magic, right? Like it's like it's amazing that this was even possible. The problem is though, if you actually look um, at the result set as a whole, it's only eighty percent accurate, right? Like you'll find twenty percent of those in there are just what the hell is this, you know? So as like a sort of imperative programmer coming to it, um, or a guy who's my 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 experience is based in the world of uh, 
traditional programming, you know, um, to see that it's like, okay, this is a bug, but it's not, you know, that's one of the, that's mm -hmm. one of the, the switchovers you need to make is to accept the fact that you're never going to, you're going to get a lot of great, a, a lot of great results for very little effort, but you're not going to get ever hundred percent results. It's more about identifying the results that are bad, flagging them and trying to retrain to get them out of the, get them out of the, the loop in the future. Yeah, exactly. So like building that pipeline, uh, it's essentially like MLOps pipeline, right? Machine yes, learning yes. operations where you need to switch your mind a little bit into building this uh, pipeline where you can like detect problems and then feedback to the process of building a next version of your model, right? So it's and, not as yeah, easy yeah. as opening your debugger and then, okay, here is the bug. It's logical, fix it, yeah. done. Yeah, the the the... The pipeline to develop these models is long-term. It's very different than a piece of software and you need continuous monitoring and you need to continuously be able to sort of um, have signals feeding in to make that make that model better next time. It's actually pretty difficult. Um, I know there's a lot of startups around like MLOps now, which makes total sense to me, but um, it's almost like I feel like developers, myself included, need to build the mindset and to know and to, and to mentally know like, okay, these are the different components that I need to um, put into the system. Yeah, absolutely. And there is like, there are white papers published, for example, there is one by Google, I will try to also, you know, link it in the show notes um, and share with you. But it's fairly long document and it goes so high level that you might get get, get asleep, you know, while reading it. So you need like real tools, right? And you need some kind of understanding, okay, I, I stitch this together and, and I just achieve my goal. I don't want to like build the fully blown MLOps pipeline, right? And it's also expensive. Like uh, retraining, retraining these models is very slow, which means you're going to want to use the best hardware you can. And if you're doing that every day, which is crazy, but let's say you do it every week or every month, it's still it's a significant amount of um, like fixed resources you have to allocate to it, and like mental resources to understand it, to uh, debug it. Yes. Yes. Stuff. Different yeah. challenges. You're right. Yeah, I think uh, there is still a long way to to go in this in this direction. But at the same time, you. Like you as a developer, you you want to focus on the task and on the result, right? Like mm -hmm. not on figuring out what's the bug in that framework or whatever. So yep. yeah, I think there are tools already available. So maybe uh, one of them that I've been using is Determined AI or kind of doing some early stage um, moves there. It's completely open source and it say and it claims that basically it um, utilizes your GPUs to the maximum because GPUs are super expensive. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, so basically it abstracts uh, GPU uh, kind of uh, allocation away from you, but it has some limitations as well. Um, so the team is working on resolving them, but like PyTorch and TensorFlow are supported. So like you can run some fine tuning or uh, training or evaluation and hyperparameter search. So, yeah, I mean, it, it gives you a sense of control in a way, but of course right. that comes with some rigidity built in, but eventually I really hope that they will make it and it will be more kind of widespread. Um, yeah, yeah, awesome. Awesome. So today, if I go to LookPop, can I like buy an NFT already or can I just find it? Uh, you can just find it and click through the OpenSea. Um, the actual process of you getting the, the 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 deliverable and the token and all that stuff is actually pretty complicated so i'm going to let them do it um i really want to on lookpop hopefully um be indexing tons of different nft markets um open is the biggest one but there's quite a few other small ones um so i didn't want to tie myself too closely to one particular blockchain or one particular uh, form of operation 
I do think that this is developing so quickly. You know, NFTs weren't even a thing until about two years ago. So I feel like it's um, a little early to sort of like get in bed with just one of the vendors or just one of the um, yeah. partners. Yeah. And uh, I've been uh, also like when I joined uh, Quadrant Telegram channel, I, I saw like you've been so active, like you are yeah. sending some advice or commentary almost every single day. So oh, I love Quadrant and I love Telegram. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking like uh, you are the developer of Quadrant or what, but you are the user. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm doing like informal tech support uh, uh, in the opposite time zone because um, they're all on CET like you are in a, you know, for some reason, although a lot of people wind up in you know American time in there, um, I I was looking for a long time for a vector database. Um, I tried FAISS uh, Face, I think it's they, they call it um, in Python, um, and I tried a couple others, and I really didn't find anything. I I, I like um, I guess you could say like intuitive that intuitively like like scratched scratched my itch you know like i don't like software it's too complicated I like things that are sort of like um isolated and ind independent and easy to install and use um and quadrant just sort of like ticked all those boxes for me like it, it's it's a small download it's it dockerized so it's very easy to install um the api just makes sense um i had evaluated other uh, vector databases we can talk about that if you want um I found that Quadrant was the best mix of uh, mix of all those different factors. So, um, you know, when I when I embrace an open source project, I try to do my best to help them out. Um, so I, I built the first Elixir connector um, to use Quadrant from Elixir, and I'm trying to still develop other little pieces of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So actually, I'm interested. I'm quite interested because you know, like I published a blog uh, on seven vector databases. Um, it was actually six, and then the founder of Quadrant knocked oh, wow. on my door virtual door and he said hey hey please add our database as well because we are the new kid on the block and you just probably you didn't see us and then i opened their website and i was like kind of a little bit blown away because you know the documentation looks interesting very good and also like the way they position it um yes. they, they talk about like metric deep learning some things that i didn't even hear before and and and, and then i also discovered the developer team like what they do and also they customize like hnsw algorithm algorithm as well mm -hmm. the, the, the graph algorithm and can you like a little bit walk me through the options that you considered like which other databases you have taken a look at how deep you went before you decided to go with quadrant and what was the ticking moment like okay i like this right um so i think that the main one that i think i, I studied for a while and i think a lot of people look at is milvis um, Milvis has like a lot of really exciting energy going on. I think they go to have a good replication story as well. Um, but the problem where they, they seem like they wanted me to use their Python data science toolkit to sort of interact with it. Like, um, they were, their API was very abstract and focused on, um, I would say just not what I was really doing. Um, I needed, I needed an API that was oriented around, um, data operations and working, not so much analysis. Um, so that kind of slowed me down there. Um, with Quadrant, I felt that as soon as I got to the webpage, I knew how to use it. Right, mm -hmm. which I don't know, for some reason to me, you know, if a software system abstracts the specifics of how it operates and how you use it too much, I, I like, I, like say, like, I like a language where you go to the site and you just see a, a bit of code there on the homepage and there's a button you can run it. You know, like I, I don't want to um, be too uh, re removed from the actual tasks of what I'm doing. So Quadrant just seemed to like understand that and get that. And then um, going to the channel, I like the fact that um, they had a, a good 
um, a, a deep technical understanding of how it works, but they weren't trying to beat you over the head with the specifics. It was kind of like abstracted at the right level. So, um, and you know, it's it's really fast. I, I tried tossing millions of records at it, and it was almost imperceptibly slower. Like you almost couldn't tell that you were adding so many records. So I thought that was that was really fair. Uh, a lot of these um, vector databases now, I feel like they're more like platforms. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't want that. I wanted almost like a Redis of vector databases. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of. By, by platform, do you mean like that um, this database is trying to lock you in, in a way, kind of like give you so many features you don't need? Or... Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, I, and I, th- I think it's all, I think it's all well-meaning, um, but I just, I just feel like I can't, um, I can't trust one vendor for, for a lot of what I'm doing. I need to sort of spread my, spread my risk, you know, over, over different parts. So I try not to um, embrace any parts of the system that are, are too large, too monolithic, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess at this point you're wearing your VP hat, right? VP of engineering right. hat that you, right. you you don't just kind of like, oh, this is a sexy platform or tool, let's use it. But you you want to see long term what are the implications, right? Mm-hmm. And you need to you need to ad- adopt technology that has the right sort of surface shape that you know it's going to slide in easily. You know, um, I, I, I with, for instance with Python face or whatever, I knew that that was going to be a nightmare to wrap to make connectors for for different systems, and I also knew. That I wasn't going to program my entire thing in Python, and I also knew that you know um, I would need to have a, a long-term component running running a web server that was independent of Python backend restarts. So with all those factors together, I think that Quadrant was kind of like the obvious choice. And uh, plus, just looking through the code, it seemed it seemed short. I for some reason I've been having really good really good results with stuff written in Rust lately. Um, I like a lot of Rust software I come across is really reliable and uh, performant. Yeah. So like that's what I was about to ask. Like when you then when you choosing you were choosing the platform or the database, did you pay attention to the programming language that it was implemented in as well? Yeah, I um, for some reason I I know, I know it's unfair, but uh, I've definitely observed certain patterns in all let's say all Java based um, server applications. Like uh, let's say Elastic is a great example. Um, they always want to consume many 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 CPUs and have low RAM limitations, and of course there's still that um, confusing um, garbage collection cycles in, in Java. And tr- like every time I've run a Java-based service, I need to end up doing tweaking on the JVM. Yeah, which is like, garbage, I don't wanna... garbage collector, right? You don't want to do that black magic. <laughs> yeah, I, w- I want I want the um, the thing that's doing the running to sort of be self-operating. I don't want to have to be tweaking that all the time as my application needs grow and change. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, that kind of like disqualifies all Java-based software for me. And I believe that one of the major vector databases is Java, right? I think it's... Uh... Viavit, Viavit, yeah. or Viavit is written in Go, actually. So, oh, oh, no, but no, if, no. but if you mean Vespa, Vespa is written in Java and Maybe some other part. Yeah, Vespa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but th- by the way, did you consider Vespa or Viavit as you've been studying dif- different databases? Um, I I believe I, I checked out the Vespa site, but like you said, it's Java. Um, what was the other one you said? Viavit, uh, Viavit, written in Go. Yeah. It's also open source and also for your cloud. By the way, I have uh, episodes with both Milbus and Viaviate for okay. those of, of, of us that would like to kind of listen in uh, what, what are the building blocks and architectures behind this, yeah, and features. It's actually awesome. I'll have, to, I'll have to listen to that. Yeah, I'm actually very curious about the different implementation choices. Yeah, yeah, because uh, Go, Go is also a high-performance language, right, compared to Python or Java. Of course, yeah. in, in Java, it also depends how you do it. You know, if you take uh, Elasticsearch or Solar, the, both of them are using Apache Lucene, which is a search library inside. And Apache Lucene has been optimized for 
well, close to 20 years or even more. So, I mean, it's close to C in some sense, but of course it is not C. So like when you, when you load more and more data, eventually it will, you will run into situations that you just explained, right? That you start tweaking the garbage collector. There is like a dedicated channel or like even a person, I feel like Sean Hasey uh, in the um, committer side who has a lot of wisdom in, in how specifically you need to tune which parameters in which garbage collector. Right. Do you want GC or whatever you have uh, depending on the Java version, right? Because different Java versions have different GCs and like, it's almost like opening a, <laughs> a whole can of worms when you don't mm -hmm. want to actually, you want to solve that task and move on to the next one. So yes. So far, uh, I, haven't, I, haven't had, I haven't had that issue with Rust-based stuff that I'm, I'm integrating into my work um, so far. But you know, um, I, I would imagine the people using the first wave of Java-based server software didn't find any problems either. So maybe as time goes on, we'll discover that you know um, you can't do large allocations in Rust or something like that. But. Yeah, it's also cool that actually Rust uh, has been picked up by many teams developing search engines and not necessarily the vector databases, but like traditional, um, you know, inverted index databases like TV is one of them, which is using Rust. Um, and um, they have a nice blog as well explaining some of the performance bottlenecks they were able to resolve. And um, TanTV is way faster than Lucene. Uh, so... The, there is another uh, presentation by the TenTV uh, main that developer. That actually sounds great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'm looking for a good free tech system with BM25 and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, unfortunately, Quadrant isn't going to add that. I don't think it's kind of it's kind of off base for them. But that's such an important part. Um, you know, there's a reason that so many of these startups have a huge have a, have a team of people just doing search result quality. You know, search results are are critical. Yeah. Now that you mentioned this important topic, I also wanted to kind of uh, a little bit pick your brain on that. You know, like you have the traditional search engine, let's say on your classic.com site, right? Where I type text and you use inverted index to find the results. And then you want to bring in bird model or some other model to deal with more semantic search, right? So have you thought about how you would combine them? Let's say inverted index versus vector search. So I actually, okay, so we say search, right? But there's actually kind of different subtasks inside of search. Um, one of them is when you search for something, we want to show you something that's similar. So you don't necessarily want to get the exact same term. Um, so that requires like one piece of data or, or one, um, one mechanism, right? Which is more of like a recommendation type system. Um, you also want to handle um, things with direct keyword matches, of course, but you also want to handle typos, right? So typos requires like a second layer and structure of, of databases or of, um, I guess, uh, the, the way you implement it has, has to work a certain way. Um, and I, I feel like the best way to kind of do this is to have this, the 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 search the search piece do multiple different attempts at solving the query and then combine them with an intelligent strategy. So, um, like for instance, on Classic now we're we're building a, a better auto suggest component, and it's actually doing three different types of queries. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that if you really 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 if you start if you start recording what users are doing and you start looking at every single every single search and saying what did we do wrong here how can we not serve this um i think you'll see that it's actually not just one type of, of query when people see a type a search box they'll just start plugging things in they don't know if they're going to do english language queries which is something that an embedding would handle right because an embedding can, can understand any um sort of information or any, any sort of intention in that in that query um but sometimes they're just searching for um, a specific model number or something like that and uh, in my experience, a lot of text embedding models, if you use a, a term that's outside of the domain, 
something that was outside of the keyword list it was trained with, um, you're going to get really bad results. So that's another thing you have to sort of be thinking about. Um, so unfortunately, um, right now, I think that the best way to set these things up is to do multiple Elasticsearch queries, maybe a Postgres query, and maybe a Quadrant query, and then correlate all those results and, and, and display them intelligently. Yeah, exactly. So basically, like you almost like need uh, some smart ranker uh, or re-ranker which combines these results and it doesn't care uh, which algorithm was used to bring them in. But what it cares is the, you know, to optimize the the KPI, let's say, um, yeah, click-through exactly. rate or whatever it is. Because in some applications, like uh, I've been talking to one company building maps and they said that, for example, when you sit in a car and you start typing some like few letters, like two or three, uh, you don't have much time as a, as a driver and you just need to hit the, the, the road going, right? right? And so if if this company is doing bad at, at uh, predicting the intent, and, and by the way, what they do is that they they don't limit the search only to the radius around you because they believe that you might be going to the airport from where mm -hmm. you will fly out to, I don't know, Washington, D.C., and then you are looking for that specific street while you are sitting in the car in Europe. And so they search the whole database of points of interest. And, and you know, like, first of all, it's scale, scalability problem. And the other thing right. is you need to actually rank the results in such a way that they get it, right? So it's extremely difficult problem to, to handle. So in that case, I would, yeah, in that case, they're probably predicting from where you are now. If you're here now, what's the most likely thing that you want to go to? It's kind of an interesting problem. Um, and actually, that's like you actually kind of bring up a good point is that a lot of startups don't have enough data to make those intelligent associations. So it becomes a game of sort of just finding an open data set that you can use or something you do have and like sort of abstracting from it or extending it in a certain way that you can make these um, intelligent inferences. But it's very, very difficult. And until you have a lot of users, you don't have any data coming back to you telling you whether or not you're doing a good job. Yeah. So it's, it's yeah. not easy. And I think that's one of the reasons that um, we see that some of these big startups, um, these platforms become very entrenched with their data learning tools or their, their machine learning tools, their data sets they already have. It becomes hard to hard to unseat them yeah. because all yeah. the activity in that space is happening on their property, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and, and one thing I wanted to also mention that you said you want to handle typos. Uh, did you know or did you look into byte level uh, embedding models? So basically instead of, you know, segmenting the word, uh, let's mm -hmm. say letter by letter or whatever, which could be also expensive. They go into byte level. I think that paper was published by Google. I will try to look it up and also link it in the show notes. Um, but have you have did you know about this or did you consider such models? That's news to me. Um, what I've been trying to do is just retrain an existing model um, with a bunch of permutations and um, th things I could obviously think of that were like uh, common typos, like dashes and stuff like that. Um, but that's a very interesting idea. So basically, they're working on a character by character level, right? So the embedding itself is composed of that's. It's it's even byte because the language could be something they like. Okay, you don't want to like apply some linguistic component which is language dependent. Let's say in Chinese, right. you you need to segment the string, right? You need to know where is that space which is not there geometrically. Right. And then in some other languages, let's say Russian, you will have like rich morphology. So a lot of endings and prefixes of the word, right? So forms, instead yeah. instead of yeah, like surface forms, instead of like applying that surface form lemmatizer, you will go and just look at the bytes. And then you ask the neural network to pay attention to the bytes right. instead of characters. Yeah, yeah. Huh, that's actually a brilliant idea. 
No, I haven't heard that, but I would love to apply it. So please send me a link. <laughs> <laughs> I will. I will for sure. It would be cool if you can apply and, and take a look at it. And hopefully there is a model that you can take uh, off the shelf and not like spend <laughs> weeks oh or months gosh. researching it. <laughs> so the, the amount of effort going into training these models now is really, really, it's, it's absurd. It's ludicrous, you know? Yes. And I mean, the models are getting bigger and bigger, but it's funny that they not necessarily becoming more smart in a way. And I will try to open it. And, and I, I'm actually now editing an episode. So by the time this one is published, that one should also be published. And um, yeah, so basically, um, yeah, how, how you train everything. I don't know. It's like, you don't want, like you as a developer, you don't have time researching things, right? Now, with, what options do you have? You will probably need to go to some company which will mm -hmm. offer you the service for money or you need to go and scout on the Hugging Face site and, and, and hope for the best, right? How do you feel Which about that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, I have had to spend so much time just sort of getting my, my brain around certain things that are like, you know, there's no real jumping off point for a lot of the stuff. There's no single place you can go to. People, I, I see people on the web on these sites saying, "What book should I read about this?" <laughs> book? Are you kidding me? What book should you write about this? There are no books about any of this. You know, um, it's changing so quickly that I feel like you have to be part of numerous like internet subcultures and very mm -hmm. specific like um, research websites to even understand what's going on. But thank God that people like Hugging Face are putting so many resources into just making these tools available. Like their pipelines package is like. Such Amazing. a time saver. I can't believe I was ever implementing all these things from scratch or from, you know, yeah. a separate tool. Um, yeah, yeah. Pretty amazing. There is another site that I wanted to mention, which also picks up is papers with code, because when you oh, read a paper and you're like, okay, how do I do it? I need to spend a few weekends to implement it. Some of us have the skills, some of us don't. So Those people uh, are lucky. <laughs> yeah. And they probably belong to the community so, so well that, you know, they know their way through. Yeah, I think that um, you know pa papers without code are kind of like like to me a little scandalous now. Like I feel like it's very difficult to um, to to measure someone's results and to really evaluate what people are doing if they're not releasing the code. And even if um, even if they explain the algorithm in the paper, a lot of times the specific training process for the model is what's really critical. So uh, certain decisions they made about what's included in the data set, what isn't included in the data set, um, and just sort of like the training loop engineering. Like I feel like that's super important. So I think what the success that OpenAI has had with Clip, I think, goes to show that someone with a great idea and a, a model that's released on time and early is just—it's it's, going to really be a game changer for the for the industry. So. Yeah, I remember like in the Telegram channel of Quadrant, two people, including you, I think, said that without any fine tuning, you got really great results with Clip, and and I think you guys applied it to different domains, uh, and that was amazing, because especially the cross-domain application, you know, it's such a big pain for these models. There is a paper as well, where they take the off-the-shelf models, and they apply them to different, like, search tasks, uh, because a search task could be, let's say, it looks like a question answering system, or it operates in financial domain, right? So it goes in a specific domain. And then they basically, what they did is that they applied no fine tuning whatsoever. So they took the models and they applied what they call zero shot learning, right? So you just, you need to predict it right away. And they showed that, ah, man, they're not all equal at all. And sometimes they miserably fail, but they actually found out that a specific category of algorithms uh, based on, I think based on dense retrievers, if I remember correctly. So they perform better than others, but 
if you compare the dense retrievers to BM25 method, BM25 mm -hmm. was still fairly close to them and it's way less expensive. So yeah. that, that's really interesting. Yeah. It also depends a lot on the, the very, very specific use cases of your users. Like what you're saying with BM25, if something is very, um, if, they're, if they're searching for a lot of um, sort of jargon and industry specific stuff, BM25 is definitely gonna kill it compared to even models that are tolerant of the of terms outside of their outside of their keyword space. Like um, I, I really feel like what we need is a, a more natural way to um, blend these two kinds of techniques. Um, and I think as we see more and more advanced uh, vector-based search engines coming out, we're going to see systems that are able to sort of store the full text, store the vector embedding, compare them both and rank them in a um, uniform way, which is like so critical. And um, one of the, I think something you mentioned that is, is super interesting is to, to these systems that are, um, they're retraining them using simple key, uh, keyword or question answering tasks and the end result comes out much, much better. Um, the accuracy and stuff. I think that's so interesting. And I believe that if you could take a model and take specifics about your use case and, and blend them together very quickly and easily, I think that we would end up seeing um, embeddings that produce a much better result in the field. Yeah. And, and I think you are tapping also in, in, the, in the part where I hope that at some point we also get a confidence level. Let's say from BM25, you can also get a confidence estimate how well it worked. And the same uh, goes to uh, dense retrieving, you know, the, the vector retrieving, where it could also say, hey, I'm kind of like 60% confident that I found you a good result, right? Then the question is how you build it, but like, that's the goal. Let's say I'm just pushing this out to the universe. So, hey, everyone who works on search engines, maybe you can consider this, or maybe you already are considering this. But I think that would be so much easier because, for example, in e-commerce, right, the, one of the problems is zero heat search and probably for your search ends as well, right? Like somebody typed something that you couldn't handle. Now, what do you show? A blank screen or you show yeah. the most popular NFTs, right? And, and that, that's, that's, that's one of the hard things about, I guess, um, a, a traditional imperative-based search engine. You still, you, you can never show the user an empty page. You can never just say, oh, nothing, sorry, try again. You have to always be like feeding them next steps that they can go to that make that make a lot of sense, um, and that that that's definitely one of the challenges with um, old old style um, database search approaches. Just finding finding results that are relevant but not quite right. You know, SQL doesn't really do that. Um, so that that's that's another great thing about Quadrant. At least is that a lot of times you're getting a score metric back that um, is 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 a good and continuous you know uh, value. It's not boolean. Yes, this matched. No, that didn't match. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I remember like when I was entering this field slowly, um, I had a friend, a friend who was majoring in information retrieval systems as an academic. And, and I asked him, Hey, so if I, how do search engine work? You know, how, like if I type something, what happens next? And I knew nothing about inverted indexes, nothing at all. And he said, yeah, there is like an inverted index. So we break that documents down into this kind of vector of terms. And then it, it, it points, each, each term points to the posting list with doc IDs and so on. And then you apply Boolean, uh, Boolean like logic on top of those um, and you make it efficient. But then I was still not satisfied. I said, hey, so it means that if I need to find something, let's say I'm in discovery mode, I don't know what to type. So what should I do? 
And and he said, yeah, the IR is not there yet. Like there is no discovery. You you literally need to type at least something, right? And then I said, okay, when I type something, like how does the search engine know what I'm looking for? And he said, well, that inverted model, which is a vector space model from the 60s or 70s, it basically builds some kind of understanding of the document. And I said, how exactly does it understand the document? And he said, basically, it's a bag of words. And I said, how, right. can, it, how, how can it make sure that it understood the meaning when it's just bag of words? Well, he said, there is also IDF component, NTF component, and, and these two play together. And hopefully the idea is that you will find some unique document which, which uniquely explains what you're looking for. But if I'm not looking for a term, if I'm looking for uh, to be or not to be, each of these words is a stop word. Now, yep. how does it know what I'm looking for? And then he said, okay, Google actually pays more attention to the title. So like if these words occur in the title, they will rank the document higher. And at that point I was like, this is black magic. So it doesn't understand anything I'm searching. It's just tuning it, right? It's, it's layers of hacks upon hacks upon hacks to achieve certain goals. It's, it's very interesting. And in the case of Google, it's amazing that it works as well as it does. Um, the, the, the scope of documents that they have in that index is, is ridiculous. And to be able to sort of fulfill realistic queries, especially if you consider um, doing an exact match query for long terms across a huge index of documents, like how the hell, you know, like the, the quotation mark queries, I guess you could call them. Um, very yes. interesting that they're able to do that. One of the things that I've found um, to help me evaluate the overall like um, the overall confidence level of that that these text embeddings do is um, I evaluate different choices. Uh, so, for instance, on Classic.com, one of the options we're exploring is we have an enormous um, editor workflow. So, when a new vehicle comes into the site, we need to have a vehicle a, a person who's expert at that make and model look at the vehicle and determine what it is, and answer some questions about it, like what color is it. Um, has it been restored or is it an original condition? So what we're trying now is to actually use Clip for that. So um, I have a, a database of those, let's say, potential colors. And then um, I evaluate the image with, with Clip and I say, um, picture of a red car, picture of a blue car, picture of a green car. And then I look at all of them and I determine which one, obviously, which one has the, high, the highest, uh, the closest distance. But also, overall, did any of them have a close distance or were they all kind of distant? Or were they, you know, were they all very far away from um, from the, the the embedding of the query? And if so, then I then I tell myself that okay, that we're not answering this question well, right? Like the the fact that it had no strong suggestion at all is in a way a confidence yeah. factor, or a confidence metric in a way, which is kind that's, of interesting. To that's a fantastic. Like you are able to find an answer to my question, which is like broad enough, I think, but. Like essentially you can use a threshold on the, on the distance. It didn't cross my mind at all. Like, yeah, you're right. Like you can define kind of like the confidence interval for these distances, right? And you know which metric you are using and you know your data set as well, right? So you could go through the mill of your lab and check, okay, is this a good one? Is this a bad one? Yeah, that's an amazing solution that you just came up with. And yeah. from and from the perspective of, you know, the... Um... The amount of artifacts. So when, like, when you're when you're when you're building a piece of software, you have to say, how many little artifacts am I creating here? What do I have to actually do? Am I creating a lot of stuff? Am I just creating a little bit of stuff that works for a broad range of data and, and you know use cases? Now with Clip, you get so much for free, quote unquote. Like that whole question answering system that I used to implement that that uh, it took a couple hours, and of course it's going to take a lot of tweaking. But compared to training a bunch of image classifiers to answer the same task, which would take me an enormous amount of effort, I would have to have you know, we have seven different attributes, so there have to be seven different models, uh, hundreds of thousands of training images for each, a very elaborate process of manually correlating them. With Clip, I just got all that quickly. 
And again, it's not super accurate, but I, it gives you a building block that you can just apply everywhere. And you know, if at some point I wanted to find other vehicles like this one, that same model works. If I want to find, uh, if this matches a certain given piece of text, like, is this a Ford Mustang? That model works. Um, it's just, I don't know, it's really, really, really amazing. Yeah, it's mind-blowing that, you know, science, as you said, you know, somebody in, in the science world thought about this problem and they came up with some really great solution that you can actually use. But when, when you discovered that Clip works so well, did you, did you get amazed to the point of going back and reading the paper or you're not interested in papers? <laughs> Um, I flipped to the paper. I'm interested in papers to some extent. Um, I know some people like take a week off of work to read a paper and stuff like that. I'm like, whoa. Wow. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I don't come from a math background. I come from more of a, a practitioner, programmer background. So um, for me, I actually prefer sometimes to study the code um, and to understand, like a lot of times their usage instructions will give you a lot of like subtle information about ways that you should and should not apply it. Um, so I, I kind of stay in that space for the most part. Um, but I am definitely paying a lot of attention to all to all embeddings at this point. And I feel like this is like, especially the multimodal ones, once they start including video content and once we can, we can run audio through there as well, it's just going to be a really exciting time to be alive. Yeah, I think it's great that you're looking at, at the code because it's like several levels of, of, of abstraction, right? First, you, you're trying to understand, okay, is this useful? Okay, it is. How does it work? Maybe what are the limitations? What are the advantages? Uh, then you go to the paper, so where they, of course, beautifully describe the algorithm and they say it's the best. So it beats right. the state of the art and, you know, over the previous work. But the problem is that there is always a gap, or usually there is a gap between the paper and the code. Mm -hmm. So if they publish the open source code, you go there and, oh my God, there is like a bunch of additional hacks on top of the paper to make it really work. Oh, I yeah. see. So yeah, I, I, it, it's amazing that you go back and, and read the code. And are you getting scared of reading like C++ code? Or no, no, no. I mean, okay. I, 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 in a way, C++ is like it's so much. It's, you know, it's a different side of your. It's a different part of your brain. You know, C++ is so much simpler in a certain sense that um, every every line there has a specific um, action at a specific point in the code. Like every line there has a certain meaning. With um, let's say a model in PyTorch, there's a lot of like for instance, like if your normalization is wrong, right? It's hard to tell that, and it's hard to even see that, except for watching a training curve and guessing and sort of hoping. And maybe that's part of my, maybe that speaks to my skill set. But um, I definitely think that the machine learning model is brilliant because it's such a small amount of code that can do so much. Whereas the C++ it, stuff is interesting because everything is excruciatingly carefully defined. So it's kind of two separate sides, um, but both beautiful in their own way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and especially when they get combined. So you like you yeah, build exactly. some model on C plus plus because, for example, HNSW the graph algorithm is implemented mm -hmm. in C plus which looks like C. So I took a look at it with my one of my colleagues, and he was like, "Wow, this is not the modern C plus plus code." And oh, like, they're like basically yeah. yeah, it's like basic. It looks very basic in a way. Of course, they use some C plus plus elements, but like. For example, they allocate memory with like um, this malloc. low level of mallocs, yeah, and and you're like, wow, yeah, you're doing that, and then and then some other companies, for example, like um, Semi, which built the Aviate or uh, Quadrant, like uh, basically re-implement the algorithm in their language of choice, Go or Rust or whatever. So because you you feel probably better after understanding each each bit there, and then you can also control it in the way you want, especially after listening to users. Yeah, and um, and you know every I think that um, it's kind of like they're living in different um, different computational spaces in a sense, like what what they're expressing and what what that line of code 
code does is, is the complete opposite from um, the perspective of what is what we're committing to the machine here. You know, the machine learning models, um, we're building a framework in which it's capable of learning something. In a C++ based or any imperative environment like that, we're we're expressing um, everything it can, speci it can specifically uh, it can specifically do. It's almost the opposite. It's mm -hmm. kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, exactly. Hey Tom, it was really great uh, talking to you. But I was still thinking, like, if you can spend a few minutes, and if, if you are not averse to philosophy, like, I, I like to ask this question also to each guest on my on my podcast, like. Considering that vector search is an emerging field in many ways, um, we don't know yet if it will fully replace the traditional search or if they will work together. But in general, like what makes you excited? Why are you doing this? Like what, what keeps you going and exploring this field today? Um, I have a very simple answer for you. I'm tired of writing if statements. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you want to piggyback on some complex models that would train someone? Yeah, I want, I want to show the machine examples of it working correctly and examples of it working incorrectly, and the machine learns exactly what those if statements should be. I mean, it, it's the idea that we have to train something by, by illustrating every possible variation of it is just insane. If Imagine, like, on, let's say on LookPop, when you're searching for money and you see um, images with dollar signs in it. Like, that could have been programmed by a human being, but it would take a team of hundreds, and it would take them 10 years, and then they would finally have the money detector. You know, with the machine learning model, some brilliant dudes took a couple months to express how it could work, and now it can solve all these different questions. Um, it's, it's fascinating. No, it's it's an amazing answer, actually. Thank you. I mean, it's it's you know, like some people get entrenched in like, oh, I'm so in love with machine learning, but like you, what you say is that you have a practical need, and you also know the limitations of your previous approach, right? Like if statements, like who, who wants who wants to code if statements? So like if you take, let's say, a dictionary, like somewhere in Solar Elasticsearch, you need to manually code that dictionary up and like maintain yeah. it. Oh my God, really? Is that the best part of your job? Probably not. De defining synonyms is, I cannot believe I have to define synonyms. Someone's already done this somewhere, you know? <laughs> in dictionaries somewhere, and they're just yeah, exactly. sitting on the bring it in somewhere. Dusty, dusty shelves, and why not, why not embed them in, inside the uh, machine learning algorithm? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, it's so fantastic talking to you. Thanks for bringing this user perspective. And like, is there something you would like to announce or share with, with the audience, you know, anything at all? Just check out lookpop.co and uh, take in some NFTs in your life. Yeah, and buy an NFT and uh, spice up your life, your digital yeah. life, right? Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Hey, Tom, Great. thanks so much. I really wish you all the best in, in trying Quadrant and implementing it in your product and also like uh, the whole web to your user base. And uh, I'm sure we can talk later as well uh, and you can share some progress bits, you know, as you go. Great. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Yeah, bye-bye.